And competing for us is understanding the winning details, things that go into winning. When we used to recruit guys, we'd always say like, does this guy impact winning? And sometimes it might be a guy who's a glue guy who moves the ball. And, you know, it might be a guy who rebounds it really well, but made us score it with a group of four guys who can score it. But it might be a guy who just understands the game and makes everybody better. And so when we talk about these conversations, which are sometimes very tough, we start with trust because the reality of it is we have nothing if we don't have trust. And trust is one of the easiest things to be broken. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Italy's Pallacanestro Trieste, Jamie on Christian. Coach Christian is here today to discuss coaching and preparing for high IQ players and teams, constant communication, and we talk point guards like quarterbacks and the mayhem defense during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Unique, an absolute must. The most helpful and highest quality coaching content anywhere. These are some of the comments coaches are using to describe their experience with SG+. From NBA and NCAA championship coaching staffs to all levels of international and high school basketball, SG Plus is designed to help curious coaches discover, explore, and understand the what, why, and hows of what the best in the world are doing. Through our easily searchable 750-plus video archive on SGTV, to our live coaches social in Las Vegas, SG Plus is the assistant you would hire if your athletic director didn't already give the stipend to football. For more information, visit slappingglass.com today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Jamie on Christian. Coach, thanks so much for making the time mid-season. As we were just talking a little bit beforehand, it's a long season, a lot going on, and we appreciate you sitting down with us today. I appreciate all that you all do. So it's a pleasure to be here. I love the enthusiasm that you share the game. I love the enthusiasm that you enjoy your space and what you're giving to other people within the game. It's a joy to be on with you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Podcast is great because we never lose on the podcast. Talk to us about our enthusiasm after a loss yeah. <laughs> with our team. It's a little different. <laughs> but thank you. We appreciate that. Excited to dive in with you today on something we were talking a little bit beforehand. Coaching high IQ players and coaching against talented teams, older teams, and the level you're at now, the professional level in Italy. These players have been around for a long time. They're men. They know how to play the game. And just ways that you try to coach and coach against strategy-wise the higher level player. Yeah, you know, I'll start with me personally. I'm a person who just loves all form of basketball. You know, I love college basketball. I love really great high school basketball. I've always loved NBA basketball and I've always loved basketball in Europe and just how these coaches operate. So coming into this experience where I knew I was going to have a lot to learn, I just had such a level of respect for those players, for the games that they played against high level people. And so when I came in, my thought was, I have a foundation of how I believe to play. You know, I always believe in taking a ton of threes. I believe in certain forms of ball movement that are maybe a little bit unique. But I wanted a chance and a space with our players to make sure that we worked on it in a collaborative way. You know, so I always talk about what kind of environment do you want to create and the kind of environments we want to have. We want to have competitive, we want to have supportive, and we want to have environments where we constantly are learning. So coming in the door, I wanted to set the tone for that as a leader. You know, it's different when you're an American coming into a situation where there's not even an American coach in Italy that's a head coach, right? So these guys have probably never played for an American coach. So I don't want to set a tone that we're only going to do A, B, and C and that the way we do it is the right way. That's just not my way. So when you talk about coaching high-level players, high-level IQ, it's about understanding the concepts that I believe in and then giving them the power to go and use those concepts in a lot of ways. Something I thought was interesting, a lot of our players were sort of used to having rules. If this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do that. And there's little accountability in the rule, you know, if you just continue to follow the rules. But I don't believe in rules. You know, I believe in these concepts. And I believe concepts give, you know, I tell our players, you have creative advantage and creative spirit within each play. 
because you can do one, two, or three things, you know, whatever you see the defense telling you to do, whatever you feel like is best in the moment. And I, I will say that took our players a little bit of time to get used to because I think some of them really wanted the rules. And just tell me the rules to do it and I'll follow it. And I just said, man, the creative spirit that each guy has, one or two or three different reads in a situation can really make it hard for you to be guarded. You know, if you're a team that forces baseline and you're a heavy baseline, you're saying, hey, we're going to give up this 45 cut. We're going to give up this pass behind. And if you can build a team that has the ability to make those reads, well, now we can beat you in so many different ways without having to change anything that we believe in. And so I would say like, that was an interesting part, you know, but when you have high level IQ players, like I do, the other thing they're able to do guys is they can take these concepts and they can layer them in so many different ways. It's like a choose your own adventure book offense that I feel like we have, and they layer them in so many different ways and they can do it in such a quick time and move the ball in so many quick ways because they've all been coached so well, you know, it really gives you an advantage on the offensive side of the ball that ability to kind of think through it and to be able to attack it that way. Before we maybe dive into some of the creative spirit and layering concepts, which I'd like to get back to, you mentioned at the very beginning, you had a unique form of ball movement that you believe in. And I would just love to see if you can go a little bit deeper on what that is and why you believe it. So my foundation, you know, when I was coaching at Mount St. Mary's in Siena, and even my first year at George Washington, we were a heavy ball screen team. And I would say we were almost more rules-based. If you iced, we ran these set of plays, you know, we would run 20, 25 to 30 different plays in every single game through those first seven or eight years. And so if you were going under, we were going to run these set of plays and it was going to lead to these kind of concepts. And when you watch this play, everyone felt like our team had a lot of freedom, but in actuality, they didn't have freedom. They were basically following rules. <laughs> you know, they're basically saying, hey, if that does this, we're going to always do this. And, you know, if we call this set of plays with two guys behind, it means you're going to make this read here, throw the ball there, and it's going to go there. When I got into the A-10, you know, coaching against guys like Chris Mooney and Mike Rhodes, you know, you just got some great coaches. You can be that detailed if you want to, but their teams are good enough that they can take away what you're looking for all the time. And so it required us at GW to basically develop what we call this flow, where depending on the set, we have low splits and high splits. The Warriors do a lot of low splits. That's become really popular, obviously. So we use a lot of those. We use a lot of what we call high splits, where if I have the ball in the wing and I'm a big, I can reverse to the top of the key. I can pick and roll or pick and pop, pick and roll into the pocket. Because a lot of times those wing pockets are open. Or I can pick and pop to the top and continue DHO to the other side, hit and screen. But it's just sort of this flow that we talk about for each person having a different ability. And so certain guys, they might want to roll right away. Other guys, you might want them to get all the way to a naked side before they pop. Some guys, you might want them to roll on certain actions with certain people and then pop with others, right? So it's more about this conversation that you're trying to have about this flow that allows guys to have that creative differences, I think are super important that make a scouting report hard to follow. And so we just started going to a lot of that. I mean, I basically went from my first eight years running only ball screen to my last two years at GW running only motion. And then here, we basically bridged both of them together. And we spent a lot more time, like the other day, we got up to about 65% of the game in flow. And that would mean coming off, running one set, and then we're flowing the rest of our offense and getting the ball inside to a lot of different guys and, and doing some stuff like that, which I think really allows for us to be a strong team in the playoffs, but it also allows for us to be a tough team to play in the immediate. With coaching a veteran team or these high IQ guys, when you came in and you wanted to build your concepts, and like you said, they wanted rules. With older players, they usually have established habits. And especially at the professional level, like these habits have got them this far in their career. What did you think about or what have you been doing throughout the season in terms of maybe breaking habits that don't fit, let's say, how you want to play or how you think about building new habits into these older players? We actually watched a ton of film of how the guys played and how they played well. And it's amazing that you know, when you allow for creative opportunity, creative differences, a guy can find his old habits within what you want. Very few of these guys had a habit that was so bad that I said, we want to break that habit. Most of the time it was, let's put that habit into what we do. You're really good in this spot on the floor. For the last four years, you've taken more corner threes than anybody else. So let's just get you to the corner. And this is how you can get yourself to the corner. I don't know how coaches are going to love this, but to me, it's so much of a conversation just about how someone can be their very best and how they can play the best within a system. Being able to, to see it as being creative and allowing that creativity 
allows for a guy to find the time to fit into it. We've had some good success with it so far. And I think watching us in practice every week, I'm like, man, we're growing. We're growing within this understanding how to play with one another. Because I guess there's two sides to it. There's understanding my habits and my strengths and my weaknesses. But then another part of good offices is understanding the other players, their strengths and their weaknesses. And also, how can I put them in the right position to make the right plays? And what kind of reads are they going to constantly want to make? And so it's just more of this conversation when we do it. You know, if you have a big who's a great pick and pop guy, and we have a big right now who's great pick and pop and great roll. And as you guys know, you know, watch like the Oklahoma City Thunder. If you got a guy that can roll, you got a guy that can pop, you know, that's one of the hardest things to guard. And, you know, some points in his career, people just posted him up. Some points here, they just rolled him. Then to other parts, just popped him all the time. You know, and I was like, listen, we want you to take 10 shots a night. We want you popping five times. We want you rolling the other five. And we want to make sure that we're giving you the ability to have that kind of freedom within what we're doing. And then the conversation for the point guard, you know, have we had some turnovers? We have occasionally. But for the most part, the point guard and the big kind of read it. It's like, hey, this guy's popping because I got two guys below me and this guy's above me. So he's going to roll. I think just giving those guys the trust that they can go and figure it out. And we always talk about like having the ability and having the trust to figure out amongst ourselves to find the right answer. You know, and I've been amazed at how often these guys have been able to do that. You mentioned conversations playing a role. And with your background coming from college, how have maybe conversations changed or what did you have to consider within these conversations when talking to an older player, a high IQ player versus maybe a college student? You know, it's an ongoing process. One of the things I was going to go into if I wasn't back in coaching is I had some offers on the table to go into like business consulting and helping people build teams. And so one of the first things I wanted to do coming in the door besides establishing office of defense is I wanted to kind of establish like a values of how we operate. And I thought that was like super important. You've been in locker rooms, you'd probably see like all these signs up. Well, we have one sign in our entire facility. First layer is trust. Trust is all about reliability. And if we're going to have great trust, they've got to know that what I'm capable of and what I'm going to do consistently. And something that's important for me is consistently communicating what I'm seeing, what I'm not seeing. You know, sometimes players are uncomfortable with me because they feel like I don't communicate enough. If I see something that I like, I tell you. If I see something that I don't like, I tell you in real time. And if I see something that's improving, I just might hold on before I say anything. You know, I don't want to cloud their minds. I want them, hey, do this, don't do that. I see the growth in these. So we talk about trust. The second layer we talk about is being all in. Now I'm coming in a situation where unfortunately my team does speak a good bit of English, but I speak no Italian. And so I was like, let's just be all in. Let's just be 10 toes into the water and let's just go and attack whatever. And if we make a mistake, we'll fix it on the back end. But let's really be all in and whatever we're going to try to do, whether it's offense or defense or working together. Then we talk about being super connected as a group. You know, you've probably heard me speak before. Connections are gifts to the world. And now I'm getting a chance to coach on the world stage. So I want our group to understand how important that connection is. Connection is beautiful because, again, it's a recognition about who I am, who I want to be, but it's also a recognition of the people in the building, who they want to be, and why we're all working together. Sometimes in basketball, we can become sort of siloed, but no, what we're working on is much bigger than you or I. The gift that we get to share in this game is much bigger than you or I. So we want to be super, super, super connected. The fourth layer, we talk about being present in the moment and how all things in life are best when they're felt in the present. You know, we're going to be prepared, we're going to be planned, but we want to be able to be present in the moment and trust that we have the ability to figure out whatever we need to do on the pathway to becoming our very best. Then the last thing we talk about is competing at the highest level. And competing for us is understanding the winning details, things that go into winning. When we used to recruit guys, we'd always say like, does this guy impact winning? That was like huge for us, the ability to impact winning. And sometimes it might be a guy who's a glue guy who moves the ball. And, you know, it might be a guy who rebounds it really well, but maybe doesn't score it with a group of four guys who can score it. But it might be a guy who just understands the game and makes everybody better. You know, he gives us a lot of latitude there. So we talk about impact winning. So walking in the door, I wanted to lay that framework for them of this is how we're going to operate, this is who we're going to be. And so when we talk about these conversations, which are sometimes very tough, we always use that framework. I need you to trust me. I'm going to trust you to this. I'm going to trust this of you. We start with trust because the reality of it is we have nothing if we don't have trust. And trust is one of the easiest things to be broken. We have a guy on our team named Ario Falloy, who's one of the most clutch players in Italian history. And he's one of the older guys on our team. And one of the things I always try to do is I try to listen to him. You know, like, I'll just say like, what do you think about this? We're going to run this down screen for you here. You want it here? Do you want it there? Do you want us in a back screen first? You know, just talk me through what you want. Do you want more space? 
you know, because I just want them to score the ball at the end of the play. Yeah, so <laughs> that's all I want. So I just try to have that kind of dialogue. And then, you know, then I'll say, you know, I don't like that. You know, we'll have that conversation right there after practice or before practice. You know, hey, I don't like that. You know, this is why I don't like that. This is what I like. And we kind of just talk it through. And I think that just builds like trust that you hear me say all the time, let's have trust that we can figure out the problem together. And so I think using that framework helps. And then the other thing that I established while I was at George Washington actually was this framework for meeting with players. You know, like on our team, we have 10 players, we have three younger guys. And what I want to make sure that I do at least once a month is have a face-to-face one-on-one with everyone on the team. And I never want someone not knowing where they stand, what they want to do. And so I actually have it written out in a certain way, but I don't let the guys know I have it written out in a certain way. And sometimes I'll meet them at a coffee shop or sometimes I'll meet them after practice or sometimes I'll call them into the office. But each week when I do my schedule, I have a certain number of guys I want to meet with. And then oftentimes I'll say, hey, I want you to talk to me about these three or four questions. You know, just, I want you to think about this beforehand. So it's a conversation that's productive. Like it could be like, coach, why'd you take me out the other night? Yeah, I had 16 in the first half. You took me out. You can ask me that. This is the time to have that conversation. You know, the time to have that conversation, not during the game, but this is the time to have that conversation. So let's have it, you know, and it might be, ah, I missed the rotation. It might be, we're really trying to bring this other player along. We're sticking him to certain minutes that he's going to play every single game because we think he can help us down the road. We know where you stand with us. It could be, hey, we thought we had the game in hand, so we just wanted to hold it right there and, and wanted to rest you for the next game we play in three more days. But that kind of conversation is really good for a player because the players know where they stand. I'll be honest, players are not used to that level of transparency. Some they don't trust it. And it's like, no, it's just that simple. Let's have the conversations that we got to have. And I do think it's important for me to provide them with some of the questioning when they can't always verbalize what they want to ask. Pivoting back for a second on the court, as we were talking about high-level players and teams and coaching against them, and maybe now on the side of trying to game plan for those teams, how to stop great players, how to put defensive coverages together that bother them. And, you know, at every level, whether it's you at professional level, college, high school, all the way down in your league somewhere, there's teams and players that are high IQ that are just a problem. And what you think about on a nightly basis to try to slow those players and teams down? Well, first of all, it's a challenge, no matter where you are. I mean, it's a complete challenge. You know, by coming here, I watch a lot of your league basketball and, you know, I watch a lot of basketball. I love watching basketball. I wasn't taught to play basketball here. And so these players were taught to play basketball here and taught to play in a certain way. And pretty quickly, I could realize how the USA team could lose because those rules we talk about, they're following those rules so intently. And by me not knowing the rules, it made defense early on pretty hard. Here, like guys might go under the horn screen because they're going to say the point guard's not going to shoot in the first 15 seconds. You're in the States. That guy's a good player. You're not going under. You got to tag it. You got to figure it out. There's a certain ways that they like to play here that I didn't know. And so early on, we were probably taking more risk than we needed. You know, now I think we have the number one effective field goal defense in our league. We've got the number one offensive rebounding team. There's certain things that we're doing here at an incredible level. Like we're top three in defending the three, top three in rebounding the ball. But early on, you know, we had these kind of friendly games. You know, we were like pushing out on the horns and over tagging early on in the possession and putting ourselves at a disadvantage. And so I had to learn, we've got to make this guy beat us in this way. Here, you almost have to have the ability to triple switch and to switch between guards in different ways because every coach is running so many different sets. It's not like the NBA. You watch an NBA game. I've did this for, you know, every summer I sort of do this. I go and I study like an old school team or I study a team. And I just, all I do for three months is just study the Golden State Warriors and study the Utah Jazz in 1994 or whatever, right? Stuff that us nerdy basketball guys like to do. And what you realize pretty quick in the NBA, I mean, these guys are running maybe six to eight plays at most the entire game. They're playing in transition. They're playing a ton in flow. And they're really just putting their best players in the right position on the spots on the floor and then making the defense have to react. But in European basketball, it's not like that. They're running Iversons and floppies. And, you know, they're trying to put the defense at a disadvantage on the first catch. And so recognizing, like, how can we be really good defensively in the principles that I believe in, again, like defending the three and and running guys off the three-point line, also like not be given up too much. And so that was a large learning curve for me. These guys will skip the ball quick here. In the States, if I throw the ball ahead, that guy's always looking shot. And we teach him, you look shot first, always. Here, you might throw it ahead and he's looking at the roller and then he's looking to throw the skip pass that's there or he's looking to throw the ball in the ball side corner. He might be wide open and not even look at the rim. 
he's following his rules. And so it took me a little bit of time and I got a great staff of guys that were patient with me. We had great conversation in the office just about how we can be a better defensive team. You know, and here teams will switch a ton on the backside, no matter big or small. Or So, you know, playing high IQ players means you got to be a high IQ coach and you got to keep learning how they're trying to attack you. And you've got to help your team become high IQ on that side of the ball as well and understanding what we want to give up and what we don't want to give up. I would actually say the rules that our guys learned, we had to relearn more rules on defense than on offense because they would say, hey, if the ball goes in the post, it's a smaller guy, you know, we're going to trap a certain way. But, you know, I'm always a big believer in, like, I believe in playing one-on-one. I mean, I'm from the Deion Sanders. You take away one side of the field, you make everybody else kind of figure it out. And I didn't want to lose that in our mentality. You know, I wanted to put our best defensive players on their best offensive players. And if you beat us, you beat us. You know, we're here, they'll say, hey, well, let's just trap it and get it out of his hands, or let's try zone. And they'll be a little bit more adventurous. And so it took a little bit of time to recognize that I didn't want to be adventurous. I wanted to be really good. And I wanted to know where I was going to get beat at and just do it in a different way. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Huddle and their latest product, Huddle Instat. Whether for podcast prep, newsletter ideas, or putting together our weekly short and long form video breakdowns, we rely heavily on Huddle Instat's advanced analytics and extensive content library containing over 460 U.S. and international competitions. For more information on Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. The season is here, but we know that many coaches are already looking ahead at international trips in 2024 and 25. Ourselves, along with a number of former podcast guests, cannot say enough great things about our experiences working with Josh Erickson and his team at Beyond Sports. From handling flights, hotels, game scheduling, excursions, service learning opportunities, and more, Josh and his team provide unmatched service and support throughout the entire trip. To learn more about why more than 650 programs have trusted Beyond Sports, visit beyondsportstours.com and tell them Slopping Glass sent you. You mentioned a couple of times the success you guys had in defending the three-point line, and that's obviously been one of your kind of core principles. What have you found from a tactic strategy standpoint is helping you guys defend the three-point line? This is well-documented with any team I've had. You know, I believe in running guys off the line, you know, leaving my feet on a flyby. I mean, I think there's like a 14% difference if I contest a right-hand shooter with my left hand and if I contest a left-hand shooter with my right hand and flying by on the side of your body and making you take those. You know, so I just believe in that. Early in the year, I didn't. One of the things they do here in Europe is they don't leave their feet. They let you take the jumper and they might jump at your legs or something with their hand or whatever. And we did that and teams were shooting about 42% from three. And I was like, all right, we're not doing this. I got a way that I think it's going to work. And so we just really reward those extra efforts kind of goes into that second layer of being all in. Let's say I'm at the block and a guy shooting from the corner, I'm running and leaving my feet and we're going to try to make him shoot over a contest. And I just think that's a way you defend the three. You know, the second thing I think when talking about defending, the, the first thing is, is leaving your feet on contest. The second thing is running guys off the line, which means you don't have to leave your feet, but now I can funnel you to the corner or to the baseline and to help. And then now we've got to figure that situation out. But I'd much rather try to funnel you into more people than give up a catch and shoot three. So we've done a really good job of that. And then the third thing I think is underrated is really pressuring the ball, pushing the ball out when we, on the pick and roll coverages. You know, I've never been a guy who's like, let's go under or let's drop. That's always so risky to me. So we've had to do some different things, guarding the pick and roll on the wing and on the top. But I just wanted to keep the ball pressure there and to make that ball handler have to make a pass out. And then we just rotate and tag out of it however we need to. I think if you're going to defend the three, it always starts with those three things. With running guys off the line, are you indiscriminately running anyone off the line, I guess, is there like a, the Mendoza line? If he's sub 30, like we'll live, or it's like, we want to take away attempts regardless. No, it's different. So, you know, we run you off if you can shoot it. If you can't shoot it, we let you shoot it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a guy who's trying to prove that you can shoot it, like we hunt those guys in scouting report. You know, we lost the other night in a really close game against our rival. You know, they had two guys that shoot sub 30% from three, hit, hit five of them between them. You know, hey, you know, you're going to lose that game if those guys make five, but we did a great job on the other guys who make a ton. You know, you can lose that way, but it's like, hey, man, like you got to run certain guys off. And if you run everybody off, then you're just going to be chasing. And, you know, we don't want to be chasing. As you game plan or look at a team, what scares you more, these guys that they shoot 35%, but maybe take one or two, or the guys that maybe they're low 30s, but are taking, going to consistently take four to six? You know, that's a really good question. 
it's more about what does our defense give up and are you going to be able to beat us in those ways? Some of the threes that a guy may get, they just may not get against our team. Because of our ball pressure, we do a thing in transition where we tag up. So when you miss a shot, we basically crash all five guys, pick you up right away, and we're guarding. So we went about a month without giving up a transition basket. If you're a guy who makes transition threes, well, you're probably not getting against us. So we kind of go through the three-point shots. Like, all right, how are you getting these? Are you getting them in this way? All right, so we take the transition off. You're not going to get them there. Now we're tagging in a certain way on the pick and roll, but your matchup is this person. And this person's the best at running you off the line or whatever, you know? So I always worry about good players in space having a great night. (laughs) 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 We always sort of worry about that. And we'll look at the shot chart and say, like, I think Hubie Brown said a a great shooter makes shots five out of seven spots. All right, well, he's going to take these shots from the wings. He's shooting 22% from the wing. If we don't get there on time, we want to funnel him into his bad spots and keep him out of his good spots. And so we kind of handle that part of the conversation more with the shot chart. Honestly, that rarely lies. You know, if a guy's got two, that's five out of seven for great shooters. You know, when you look at a lot of these guys, you think are good shooters, they may have three spots that they make shots at. So we'll tell our team, like, hey, in the corner at the end of the shot clock, you got to run him off the line in the corner. That guy's that guy's that freedom just to run at him. And then, you know, now that's one less three that we've got to guard. So I don't know if I answered the question because I think if a guy's taking one or two, my question is always like, how's he getting those one or two? Is he get usually one or two is getting them because there's maybe a dominant ball handler or a dominant post player. And maybe that post player loves to kick out to him. So we'll say, hey, let's make sure when that ball's in the post, you can't leave this action here. You got to look for him on the skip. You know, if it's a dominant player, you know, one of the things that you can always do is look at the best score. Who does he pass to? How does he get his assists? You know, that gives you a little bit of clue of like, you know, how that ball is going to come out and, you know, and then being ready to do it. And, and look, even with us defending the three, we still, teams only take, I think, three or four less threes. You know, I mean, team's going to take a lot of threes, but it's more about can we pressure on the three-point shot that it's tougher. You mentioned tagging up. What have you learned about teaching and implementing tagging up and how to do it effectively where you're getting all five guys going? Well, if you're going to be good, you've got to be really good at some different aspects. You know, like Kansas back in the day, it's like they're great at posting up. Most teams aren't. They're great at that. That gives you a separator. And so I just thought like, what could give us a separator? And I felt like this was something that was really easy to do. It's easy to implement. It is hard to get the guys to do it consistently. I mean, you've got to stay on them about it. And we chart it, we tag it, we do all this stuff, we grade it, we encourage it, you know, all that stuff. And for the most part, we've been about 85%. Each person gets a grade, you know, whether we grade post games, each person gets a grade on how many times they go and how many times they don't. You know, so I think the biggest thing is, number one, you got to find a way to hold them accountable without having to scream and yell all the time. I've got grown men, I I probably yell at these guys twice all year, but it's more about like, what's the win-win benefit of this? If we stop the ball early, well, now we're not having to expend as much energy sprinting back. The old thought is, hey, we sprint everybody back. We stop the ball. Well, yes, because you have five guys back now. So now the ball slows down when it gets to the three-point line. But you still got to guard action. If we tag up right, then it's going to be hard for you to run action right away. Because now the drag screen is going to be about five feet outside the three-point line. I can just go under it and meet you on the other side. That's a big benefit to the defense, right? That keeps us out of rotation for one. And so I think having that conversation, understanding that, you're going to have some cross matches if you do it because everybody's just basically running to the backs of whoever's in front of them. So I end up with a guard on a guard and a big on a big. And what we've become good at is our guys in the back end kind of switching it to get bigger guys on bigger guys. And they've sort of naturally done that, which I think is a good thing. But I love a good cross match. Like I'd love to start to possess you with my big guarding the point guard because I know there's going to be a ball screen at some point and we can switch that and get back to strength. And that's just going to take them out of something that they want to do. You know, we're still working on that as a group to like, keep having that confidence in it. I mean, you would think if you go a month, six weeks without a transition basket, your team would be like, oh, now we, we got to tag up. We're going to do this. But it doesn't necessarily work that way. It's such a new concept. When we've been able to do it, I mean, we've really been super effective. And I would say that I think we've done a good job in that area. You know, if you go a month and six weeks without a transition basket surrendered, you know, let's clap your hands on that. That's hard to do against good teams with high IQs. But that ability to stop the ball early in transition I think it's really huge. You know, now, the other thing is when someone shoots it and runs out, you've got to run out with them. And I think that's harder for players to grasp because once you say, oh, we got to all go, well, now there's an exception. This guy's running out. You got to leave with them. And yeah, you know, it's funny. I think it's one of the concepts that watching the league, I think a lot of teams are starting to adapt. We want to transition now to a segment on the show we call Start, Sub, or Sit. Kind of a quick hitting lightning round where we'll give you three options over a topic and ask you to start one 
sub one, and sit one, and then we'll hop into your answers from there. So if you're all set, we'll go to this first one. Let's do it. This first one, we're going to travel back to uh, your college days and mayhem defense, pressure, trap, get up on the ball, those kinds of things. We're going to ask you to start, sub, or sit. Three different ancillary benefits of playing that style of the mayhem defense that, of course, trapping and getting turnovers and speeding teams up are great. But these are three other things that go along with it. And your start would be the, in your opinion, what was most important. So option one is that the offense is just getting more random shot selections than their normal offense is going to give them. So the players are shooting it from different spots. They're not normally shooting it from all those things is an advantage for the defense. Option two is that you're likely playing a bigger rotation. Your bench guys are getting in more and more minutes. So kind of the team culture element of it, if more guys play more minutes. And then option three is just the confidence and identity that you play with at the beginning of games, knowing you're going to come out and be the aggressor and kind of force a style of play. So start, subset those three mayhem defense options. I start the confidence because I feel like so much of the game is such a mental approach and the way we approach a goal, the way we approach a task oftentimes is the way that we finish it. So I start with the confidence. I would sub the randomness on offense. Now I'm working so much more with shot charts. How can we move teams into that? And I do think our Mayhem teams got to the point where we were able to force you into certain spots on the floor and certain people bring the ball up the floor because there's certainly a lot of different ways that you can press that I think we tend to think of one way. You know, when you really dive into our pressing system, it's how can I make the weakest ball handler bring the ball to the floor, the weakest decision maker, and that dictates an offense. And then I would sit the bigger rotation because I like to play eight or nine guys. <laughs> so so <laughs> no matter how fast you're playing, playing 10 guys is really, really tough. So I would definitely sit that one. Before we maybe get into any specifics, you just mentioned there's different ways to press, different ways to get the best ball handler, the ball out of their hands. Going back to this mayhem system, how did you think about doing that night in, night out? Truthfully, when I first started, I was like, we're just pressing every single possession. We're staying aggressive. It doesn't matter. You know, then we go play like someone like West Virginia. <laughs> you know, that game gets ugly quick. You can give up 100 points quick if you're not having a level of strategy behind it. Or even in conference play, you play a team like, at the time, Robert Morris was really one of the better teams in our league. And one of the things that's tough is that when you play good teams, and this happens in the NCAA tournament as well, and when you play good teams, they have good guards. And good guards don't put themselves in bad positions. They don't put themselves in the corner, on the short corner to get trapped, you know, where there's a 85% better chance trap ratio. They always go weak side where there's only 15% trap ratio where you're going to have a good trap. They just sort of instinctually know how to do this. Part of it is learning, man, how can you win this way? So let's say you have a team with a dominant ball handling point guard. What are some ways that we can do at the beginning of the press to keep the ball out of his hands and make the two guard who might be a really good scorer, just bring the ball to the floor to initiate the offense. We'll take our inbounder, we'll shade him towards him the entire time, and we'll just kind of keep a soft level so that ball cannot go back into that guy. And then once that ball goes in, we'll just continue to shade that way. So now that two guard has to bring the ball to the floor no matter what. Teams bring their fours and fives up. You can always do fun stuff with that. They bring their four men or five up to catch. What we would do is we say that's an automatic, we called mayhem. So they brought the five up to catch. We let the five catch it, try to make him bring the ball to the floor. But if he got it to a guard, we would then run back and trap with the five. They really don't want to throw the ball to the five a second time to bring the ball to the floor. And we would talk about this trap, not being like going and tempoing, not going and trying to steal the ball, but just trying to keep them in front, which I think a lot of times I call it like a linger, lingering, you know, that can be a lot more disturbing because if I come and get you as a five, the guard can bend your hip and get around. But if I just linger, well, now he's got to make a pass between two guys and over two guys, and it's not going to be as easy a pass. Now, if they throw it to the five, now he's got to come back and work and get the ball again. That shot clock's just ticking away. And so before you know it, it might not be a 10-second violation, but it might get over eight and a half or nine. Now they got to still get the ball to the point guard, and they got to reset. And now that's going to take them three more. It's like all math. Three more seconds before they run a play. Now you're at 15 seconds to run a play that you, you usually have 21 seconds. So if we can keep putting that kind of pressure on you through the course of the press, and most people just focus on, I got to get it in bounds, but we would just take that all the way into the half court and how we would want to attack it. You know, most teams would have, obviously I love pressing. So, you know, they'd only have one or two press breaks. So you can really scout their press break and you could take them out of what they want to do and really attack them. So you know, I think that's like the thing about pressing is it's not just trapping on the ball right away. You know, I think one year we actually did a diamond press on the front side of it and a man press on the back side of it. We did like what we called a hybrid press. 
And so if it went on the right side, we went right into run and jump man to man. If it went on the side close to the ball, we went into diamond. And I thought that really allowed us to be creative enough that create a lot of terms. We had in my first two years, I think we were third and then fifth in turnover percentage or something. We had a bunch of years we turned people over 20% of the time, which is here. You know, it's crazy here because we're like dead last in turning people over here. <laughs> it's like completely different, but we're still using some of those principles to have good effective field goal defense. You know, where we're making you take the shots we want you to take, you know, a little bit different. But I love pressing. I think there's so many different ways to do it. And I think a lot of times people just sort of lock into one idea. I truly believe anybody can do it if you understand what you're trying to get out of it. Am I trying to get the shot clock down? Am I trying to force turnovers? You know, whichever strategy you believe in, I think you can do both. Your sub was the kind of randomized shot selection that offenses tend to get when you're pressing them. And how do you marry that in your mind with not wanting to give up threes? Because good guards can penetrate extra pass against pressure, more space. And are they aligned in your mind? You still don't want to give up threes? Or how did you think about the shot selection on the back end of pressure? The hardest thing to go against is a team that will take threes against the press. We would always try to press. We tried to, let's say we trapped the ball. When the ball came out, we'd always do what we call a diagonal sprint out. We're sprinting two guys out at a diagonal. If we always sprint out diagonally and you're always ahead of the ball, then you're never going to get an advantage. We'd always try to do that because I felt like that controlled where the ball was going to go a little bit more than if we just sort of trapped, stayed with it, and then you know let the ball come out. And that point guard had to get back to his guy and the big had to get back to his. It's like, let's sprint two guys out. Whoever gets to the middle line first is going to take the ball and the other guy's going to take the other guy. And so I felt like that helped us kind of stay matched up more think that indecision, you know, a lot of times you think about it, you trap the guard usually sprints back to get to his, but he could be at a disadvantage on the other side. So it's like, let's play two guys playing against one and both guys sprint out. And then one, whichever gets their first now goes and takes the ball and the other guy helps. And so I always feel like that helped with the shot, with the shooting part of it, because we were not letting the ball get too far ahead of us. The scariest thing is when you have a team that will shoot threes against the press, because those threes are more open than the layups. Everyone talks about giving up layups. But those threes are more open than the layup. And so if there's a good shooter on the back end of it, I would say this, like if we had a good shooter on the back end, part of our press would be trying to make him to come back and catch the ball just to take him out of that spot. I mean, that sounds so like, oh, they've got two. No, no, no. no we're going to deny the two guards. We're going to make the shooter come back and get the ball, right? Now, maybe he can bring it up one-on-one. We like that matchup always. If he gives it up now, at least we know if we trap it, then he's not going to be back there to play. And then the other challenging thing is, you know, when you play against like these high major teams, they throw live dunks. They're the 6'11", 6'10 athlete you know, on the backside of that. So you just have to be really smart with how you're pressuring and where you're pressuring from. Some of the offensive rhythm disruption for the opposing team is harder for the opposing coach than it is for me because he wants certain taking certain shots at certain times on the clock. He wants to control it at a little bit of a level, and I want to make him play in chaos. And so you know, you're going to give up some of those. Another thing is I'll say this last thing I'll say about it is once you play a team once or twice, you'll know, I'll know, what shots we're going to give up and what shots we're not going to give up. Because again, the guy only has two or three press breaks. So, you know, you'll have a pretty good idea of where the ball is going to go. You mentioned when we were talking about defending the three-point line, but then at the top of this question about just looking more at shot charts, how much information do you give to your players then in regards to shot charts? And is it more what the team shot chart, individual shot charts? I guess, what are you filtering down to your players? Yeah, we might start with a team shot chart when we start, you know, depending on which team we're playing, if we feel like that shot chart tells a story, you know, we might start with a shot chart there. I believe in giving the guys information in the right way. I don't think that we give them too much. We give you what I think is is super important. You know, like good players can't let good players operate where they want to operate. And so for our best defenders, again, I believe in one-on-ones. For our best defenders, they're going to get that shot chart early in the week. But we're really trying to get this person out the middle of the floor. We're really trying to get this person out, uh, you know, like, off this. Now, in this set, if we do this, he's going to decline this. And that means at the end of this play, he's going to be here instead of here. So let's make sure that we're declining this part, make sure he's at the end where his zone is blue and not red. We don't do it for every player. I mean, at the end of the day, it's 80-20 rule, 80-20 principle. You know, you're going to get 80% of your points for 20% of your roster. So at the end of the day, we got to guard their top four guys well, and they got to guard our top four guys well. And so usually whoever does that best job on the top four guys, puts you in a good position to, to have a chance to win the game. It doesn't mean you're going to win the game. And so if you can do a good job of trying to push those top four guys in the spots where they don't like, and you're still getting to your spots, you know, typically, knock on wood, you can have a good night. And so I think the shot chart component of it is pretty important. You know, especially like anything where you get a good shooter, this guy's 41% to the right wing, but he's 32% in the lane and he has no pull-ups all year taken. So like, I know like, shoot, if I can run him off this line, he's not comfortable in the lane. 
if we can just win that last step and push him into the lane, it's going to be a tough shot. And then we're going to be in a good place. So I think the story of the shot chart, you know, I think it's like super important. And I don't think we do too much of it, but make sure the guys know the areas that are super important. During a game, and maybe let's say halftime, are you looking at in-game shot charts to basically judge the health of your offense to know where your shots have come from and whether it's a good or bad sign? We're charting a few things. Like we chart how many times we get three stops in a row. That's something we've always charted. I think, you know, if we can get you know, three stops in a row eight times in a game and score half our possessions, it's hard to lose. So we chart that. On offense, we're charting how many times we're getting the ball in the paint. We want inside outside shots. We're charting how many times we get into flow. We just don't want to get into a game where we're calling all these sets, which it's easy to do. Like you kind of get a game where things get tight and it's like everything stops. You know, I want to keep playing and flow and playing in transition and keep you on your heels. We want to make sure we're playing in flow and that we're not doing that. So that's super important for us. And then we're always checking the shot chart. This group has been great because we take basically threes and twos. We take very little pull-ups. And then I do think getting to the free throw line, but also not allowing your opponent to get to the free throw line is obviously super important. And then, you know, but if we tag up and we chart that, that means we're stopping transition. We're stopping the ball. That's an aggressiveness that I think is important to do. And then obviously you kind of know your turnovers, you know, you get that on the shot sheets. So we kind of look at that as more of the areas of what kind of ways we're creating. We just feel like if we get the ball into the paint, if we can get the ball over half court line in 20 seconds, then that means we're putting good pressure on the defense and we're going to be in a pretty good place. We are always happy to work with companies, coaches, and creators who add value to coaches and the industry. So we're very excited to announce our newest partner and the official presenter of Start, Sub, or Sit, Just Play. Just Play is the premier platform for engaging your team and managing workflow within your organization. Just Play consolidates the platforms you use and integrates with industry-leading video tools to help coaches win in four major areas, teaching, opponent scouting, prospect recruiting, and analytics. So for more information, visit justplaysolutions.com slash slapping glass today. Moving on to our last start sub sit for you. In our prep and talking with you beforehand, we found out that you've learned a lot from football, studying football coaches. So we're going to give you three start sub sit options and which one would be your biggest learnings or takeaways from studying football coaches. All right. Start sub or sit. Option one is how they break down video. Option two is how they build culture. And option three is how they manage a team or a club or their organization. Oh, good one. That's a really good one. There's a great book by Steve Belichick called Football Scouting. You love bringing out video. It's like the most comprehensive book. You understand why Bill Belichick's one of the best of all time because this book is just an excellent read. I would start managing the team. I think that's super important. I would sub video breakdown because, you know, we basically try to treat our point guards like quarterbacks and that's how we break it down to them. I think I've learned a ton from that. I would sit how they establish culture because I think in professional sports, in the right situations, the coach is setting the culture, setting the way of life. But I think most situations, it's so organizationally based on your ability to set the culture in the way you want it. And I like love NFL. Like this is a great time of year to read the athletic and all these NFL stories because you know, they fire the coach and they tell you everything they did wrong the last years, even though they made the playoffs the last eight years. So you should find out all the things that happened in the building, you know, or when they hire a guy, they tell you all the great things that he's done, you know, all the great players he'd worked with, even though there's 150 people in the building, you don't know if the guy worked with or not. Right. So I think the culture part is just so interesting because I just think it's such an organization. The coach sets the tone for it because he's out in front, but, and this is now I'm on the pro side of it. You know, you're only as powerful as your organization allows for you to be. If they're trusting what you're saying, if they're allowing guys to go up to management above you and, you know, they're allowing stuff like that, it's going to be hard to hold a culture in the way that's needed unless you have just great organizational alignment. And I think that's really hard to have in anything, but especially in pro sports. I'd like to start with your sub, what you've learned about video breakdown. And you mentioned you treat your point guards like a quarterback. Well, I think the ability to teach them, you know, the region, like I've gone, spent some time with some offensive coordinators. And when I was at Bucknell, I lived with an offensive coordinator at Bucknell at the time. who was like a spread option guy. And so we'd go out in the backyard and he'd sort of teach me spread option football. And it's a great thing to learn. And so I think the video breakdown part of it is you want your guys to be able to play fast. And that's why I don't want to give them rules. I want to give them these concepts. You can make any one of these three decisions. Let's go out here. 
Now, if there's a double tag on the backside and their foreman always overhelps, then most likely this foreman is always going to be there. But in the situation where he is not there, you're still reading it because you might have the roller on that play. You might have the skip on that play. They might have a rookie who's never played before. So now you can't anticipate that he's going to be in the same position. The ability to say, let's just talk about the four-man overhelping. The ability to have a different play calls, right? With the four-man's filling behind, we're looking for this. Or whether guys are placing in front, we're looking for this. So just for that guard to know like, oh, this is my key on this play. And if I see him cutting up, then I'm making the pass here. You know, I think that's really helped me like teach the game. And we have offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators here. That's how we do it. And we've done that for my entire time coaching. And I think having someone on one side of the ball that they can really learn, number one, learn their learning styles of the people on your team because everyone learns differently. And when you have one voice, we do a ton of individual film and then we do like rotational film. So it might be four guys in a group going to defensive room, four guys going to the offensive room, four guys going to special. We break that up, you know, depending on how we want to. We rarely ever, ever, maybe on game day, just as a summary, we do team film. It's just the more, more we can do it individually, the more these guys can learn, the more questions they can ask. You know, you talk about high IQ players, you want those guys to ask you questions. And so creating an environment where you can ask questions without criticism, where you can ask questions without being said, no, this is the only way we're going to do it. You'll be amazed how many times guys come out of the defensive room and they'll say, you know, he was thinking about this on this action. It's like, oh, you know, that's not bad. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. You know, it's maybe, you know, maybe that's something that we can look at, you know? And then a lot of times it's like, you know, we get to the playoff series, we're going to have to play this team five times. Maybe we don't want to show that yet, but maybe that's something we need to put in our book for the future. Jamin, with the rotational film work, the benefit that you're seeing from that, is it again, just smaller groups are going to be more likely to ask questions? How does that work? And what have you found behind it? We've been doing this my entire head coaching career. My mom and dad are both teachers. My mom's a special education teacher. My dad's a PE teacher. You know, you talk about classroom size and the importance of learning. And so like, you know, we were doing the same thing. Like we'd have like 12 people on a team and everybody's kind of learning something differently and hearing something differently. I got guys like speaking Italian. I got guys speaking Spanish. And so it just kind of made it a perfect situation where we could come in and say, hey, we're going to spend, you know, what's crazy is we spend seven minutes on the offensive film, seven minutes on the defensive film. And we do that three times a week, right? So we get 21 minutes on both sides, but we're not spending it all at one time. And it just allows like that little bit of a breather. So we go into the defensive meeting. They sort of hear their keys. They watch it. They ask questions. Then they have a little short walk to, to where the offensive meeting is. Just a little bit of time to digest it. And you can see when the guys are coming into the next meeting, they're thinking about the last meeting, but they're digesting what they were seeing. They're digesting what they're hearing. Instead of going to everybody there and we're giving everything, how much is really going to stick? You know, I feel like our guys really have a lot sticking. And then we get on the floor and they start to execute it really quickly. And they'll say, well, well I thought we were looking for this. I thought this. And that's when you can really tell that they're getting it. You know, I've done this in college, a couple of different places. And when you watch our team's practice, you see guys raise their hand. I love when guys are raising their hands. It's great. You know, you don't see that when you go to practice. Guys raise their hands, they ask questions. We're going to have a good game because guys are engaged in the game plan. And, and a guy can say like, coach, maybe we want to try to push up on an action. And a guy can say, coach, I don't, I don't really love this. You know, I feel like I'm late in this push up. You know, I'm like, how oh, you think so? It's like, yeah, like, all right. A lot of times it's the conversation that the coaches that I had in our coaches meeting. It's like, I don't really love this either. All right, well, what do you think? It's like, well, let me just do this. And then we have that kind of conversation and then we go on the floor. The guys do a great, I mean, again, great effective field goal defense. A lot of credit goes to them because, you know, we're having the conversation on some of the tougher actions. You know, you want to force them high, you want to force them low. We force them high, he's going to go into the pick and roll. We force them low, you're going to have to go on them one-on-one. You know, well, I want to get this guy on the one. I want to get this guy on the block because he doesn't like being on the block. All right, well, let's force him low and then we'll do it this way. I think that's just important for them to be able to learn it and to have that ability to have that kind of conversation. Jamie, on your off the start, sober, sit, hot seat. <laughs> Tremendous effort from you there. That was great. Got a little mayhem, got some football. Always fun. So thanks for playing that game with us. Thanks so much. J-Man, we got a final question for you as we wrap up the show. Before we do, thank you again for all your time and your thoughts. We learned a ton. So thank you very much. I love it, man. I, I just appreciate what you all do. And it's a pleasure to be on, man, with you guys. Thank you. We appreciate that. J-Man, our last question that we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? That's a great question. Because I think the investments that you have to make can constantly be changing. You know, like when I was a young player, I would sit with three different coaches every summer. Spend a full day with them. You know, it might be a guy who coaches Princeton, it might be a guy who presses. And I would just go and sit with them and write down all the notes I could write down. At the time, that was a great investment. You know, not because I was trying to network, but because I was just trying to learn how to play a two-three zone effectively or how to run Princeton offense, whatever. 
And then now I've kind of gotten into this routine. I, I would say the best investment I've made is probably like investing in my personal space and what that does for me as a coach and as a person. And there's simple ways you can do this. You know, you can go 20, 20, 20, wake up in the morning, 20 minutes of exercise, 20 minutes of meditation, 20 minutes of writing, writing or reading, learning you and investing in what makes you tick. You know, these are high pressure opportunities that we love. And because we love them, we'll spend 24 hours a day on them. Now, I've had times where I've gone 27 hours straight watching film, you know, like trying to figure out how to beat a team. And, and that sounds cool in some stages, right? And it's good to be able to lock in on one thing for a long period of time. I do think that's the strength of many coaches. But in the same respect, your brain functionality needs sleep. Your brain functionality needs time to be creative. It needs to work through. When you're a head coach, your job is decision-making. And if my brain is tired, I'm not going to be in a position to make the best decisions as often as I need to be. Now, I learned a lot of this through COVID, where the world was flipped on its axis and I was really off. Like I couldn't get back in a rhythm. You know, I'd been like working out and doing different things. And because the world was different, I was off my axis a bit. And so it forced me to learn to invest in myself. I listened to one podcast a week and I listened to it all week long. Sometimes it's you guys, sometimes it's someone else. Sometimes I'll say, oh, shoot, they had this guy on. I'll go back and listen, right? But I wanted to be able to digest one quality thing, one quality thing, and like just listen to it all the way through and take notes on it. And then I wanted to read and just work through that. So on my day planner sheet that I have that I created, did I read? Did I share the good? Did I really talk about and share with the world the good things I was seeing? You know, because that's important when you have the platforms that we have to share, I'll call it shout the good, to have the ability to do that. Did I work out? Did I spend some quiet time with myself? Did I spend time with my family? And I checked those boxes off. And I think, I don't believe it's balance. You know, I don't think that's really balance. But I think it's really important to learn if you're going to be at your best, what do you need to be? Any of your investments need to be a personal investment on what allows you to be your very best. And it's usually working to a certain point, being able to put it down, letting your brain recharge. So now you can go and like that information we took in Our brain needs time now to process it. It needs time to now apply it. And now I have to be able to figure out how I can use it. And if I'm not sleeping, it's just coming in and it's not going anywhere. I think that's the best investment that I've had is like learning how to invest in myself and what I need most. All right, Pat, let's not delay. Let's just hop right into this wrap up here. Was awesome having Damien on and like many guests, we get a chance to connect off the podcast as well, whether it's, you know, Las Vegas at the Coaches Social, like we do with Jamie on, or we were lucky to be guests on his show back in the day. And just a great person, obviously a terrific coach, as we'll get to here in a second, but was a lot of fun connected with him on a lot of basketball stuff on our show today. Definitely. I mean, again, it was a pleasure to be on his podcast. So we're grateful that he returned the favor and came on and joined us. Really enjoyed the conversation. I mean, we're going to get into it, but the first thing that both you and me said right after the podcast was just how thoughtful he is on the game and his craft and what stood out like time and effort and the whys he researches into what he wants to do really came across. He's in a unique part of his career where he's gone from a successful college coach, a young coach that had success and moved up over here in the States, and then now getting his chance to coach in Europe at the pro level in Italy. And you could just hear this whole conversation why he's successful everywhere he's been because of how much time and effort he spends to understand his players, to understand the league, mm-hmm. to constantly be learning and growing. I know which we'll touch on here. And so it's great to have him on, especially at this interesting part of his own career where he's transitioned to the pro game. I'll kick it back to you on this first bucket, which we just wanted to talk about coaching a higher level player, potentially higher IQ, have more reps, harder to probably beat from a scouting standpoint, because you know, the other team knows how to adjust to your coverages and whatever you're doing. And we wanted to just really dive in on that. Yeah. I think the first thing that kind of stood out to me is when he got into, he mentioned he wanted to establish his values early. So, I mean, for us, that was like all the carrot we needed to go into what his values were. You know, I mentioned he wanted trust, all in, connected, being present and competing. And I really enjoyed the conversation that, you know, from there, I mean, 
was just cannon fodder for us to take it everywhere and explore where he got those things, how he settled on them and why, you know, they're each important to him. Yeah. And reminding me of last year on the podcast, we had Sundance Wicks on about constantly communicating. I think that was something that Jamion had said too about he wants his players to know he's constantly communicating to them. He talked about the sit down meetings that he wanted to have with a certain number of players each week and questions that they would answer and kind of this open forum for them to be able to come in and you know discuss whatever it is that's on their mind, good, bad, ugly. And I think you got the sense there of what kind of coach he is and how much those kinds of things help on the court too, with being able to coach them certain ways and having input from them and how do we get to kind of a shared situation. And I think that also bled into how they did some stuff tactically as well. We'll get into it and I'll throw it to you in a second. Made some adjustments after his earlier days there and a lot of that was talking to players and i'm sure some of that was like through these meetings yeah 100 percent. you know when he said he built the trust and when then they got on the court one of the things he learned now being in europe is that he was taking more risks than needed he gave a great example of the horn screens and that he came in saying we're going to go over we're going to be aggressive we're going to you know send the tag early and the players just said you know it's not a threatening screen going under that all comes down to trust through the meetings he's had. And I did like, you know, when he bled in to our overall conversation of just coaching veterans and then just understanding the league and knowing that, like, you know, why are we expending so much energy here? I thought just in general, that's also a good takeaway for me as well. Just kind of knowing what is the threatening thing and when you should be the hard line and have your principles, have your identity versus kind of just taking a step back and understanding certain situations. I think it was with Coach Morrison when he was in Perth and realizing the same thing with all this false action that in Australia they were doing, or especially in Europe, you know, expending all this energy, maybe trying to blow up handoffs or this false movement, trying to take it away. But it all results then in a pick and roll. And let's stop trying to be taking too many risks here when at the end of the day, it's going to get to this ball screen and we can just concentrate on this rather than expanding all this energy. And maybe they, we mess it up and we give them a layup, a backdoor, a three unnecessarily when it's just all they're trying to do is just move the offense to this ball screen. Yeah, I agree. And I think maybe the overarching theme from Jamie on like what you were just talking about is it's kind of the fun part of coaching is going into a season with a way you think you want to play defensively, offensively, transition, tag up. And then as the season progresses, whether it's a personnel thing or whether it's scout thing, like how your team changes a little bit and how certain things that you thought you're going to be good at, maybe you're not. And certain things that maybe you didn't even think about all of a sudden become a weapon for you, whether it's a, a tweak on defense. And that stuff is, I think for me, it's always the fun part, you know, even just personally looking at stuff maybe we're running now that beginning of the year wasn't even on our radar, but just over the course of the season, because of certain things taking place, you start to rely on some things more than others or injuries. And I think that's, what we all kind of love as coaches is finding those ways to help our teams win. And I think throughout this conversation, you could hear Jamie on this constantly searching through that with conversations with the players, with adjustments to defense. And he mentioned, you know, how those adjustments have led to them becoming better defensively and his understanding how the Italian game is played and, you know, where to really take advantage. And I think whatever it is you decide to do, I think that that effort to adjust, change, tweak, fix, something he does really well. One last point on this, Aaron, you talked, just reminded me of our conversation with Bernie Holiday, and we had a good conversation and start some sit about conviction. And he mentioned this analogy of the golf club. Swinging the wrong club with conviction is always going to yield probably better results than swinging the right club without conviction. And I think through these conversations, through building trust and this open dialogue, you can understand what your players believe in. I kind of been thinking about that a lot. So if we go back to, again, this foreign screen where the players are going to go over, however, they're going to tag because the coach says it. That's another part of the puzzle to always think about. Maybe this strategy makes you feel better as a coach or you're convinced it's right. But if your players don't, they're the ones executing it. It's a back and forth dialogue, but it goes part of the buy and getting the conviction. Yeah. It reminded me, Coach Will Voigt, who's now in the San Antonio G League organization, mentioned it doesn't matter teach them to peel switch or whatever offense you run. I think his quote was, if you get five players playing really hard and together, at the end of the day, that's hard to beat. Flip into start, sub, or sit. Let's quickly go to your football analogy. And in our 
research and in talking to Jamie on beforehand, we know that football was a sport or is a sport that is American football. We're talking about American football is a sport that he likes to study for a variety of reasons. And so we thought it'd be interesting to discuss what it is about that sport that he most takes from it. And so I'll kick it back to you on takeaways about film and building a culture and running the building. Yeah, this one was a fun one. I mean, I know in the past we've had conversations on which sport with Coach Dennis Gates. We kind of gave him a couple different sports. We had known too that he liked to study from different sports, but it was fun with Jamie on to get into what specifically about football were his takeaways. I mean, you mentioned it with film. I really, really enjoyed the rotational film that he does with two small groups, seven minute film session. And then, you know, we switch and they walk over and do another film session. And I liked how he said it gives them time to digest and think about what they just watched, maybe talk amongst themselves. I like that approach, you know, approaching from like, yeah, okay, you have your offense, your defense and a coordinator, you know, and then he had some good thoughts to an individual film and making sure he's kind of asking more questions. And with him, I think he referenced his point guards were like QBs. So just kind of sitting them down and going through reads. For me, that was the big takeaway there, just how he approached film. I find that most interesting because I think we've had a ton of conversation on film work. We had a, a really fun conversation with Coach Hardy. But yeah, like how can we do it better? How can we get it so they're retaining information? They're taking stuff away. And it's like all digesting and getting through. And again, I go back to not just film session to make us as coaches feel better. Side note, you and I are name dropping the heck out of this podcast right now. We're doing a fantastic job. (laughs) (laughs) Dan, moving to our last start subset, I know you were eager to have this conversation and knowing his past teams in college that he was big on his mayhem defense. So I'll kick it to you with your takeaways there. I'll just start with our background on this. We were really excited about this question. I know I was because he was so good at it. He came up from somewhat of a pressing background in his earlier days as an assistant. And so I think what's interesting is coming from that background and then like to what we're talking about earlier with now triple switching and different coverages and being less risky and also having this in his background where they were pressing, they were trapping, they were you know creating the flow and the energy. I mean, you see just like his flexibility as a coach, I think. And so I'll just start with uh, which was his start, which is the confidence and the identity piece of this stuff. And, you know, you've played against teams that press and trap and create havoc. And I know I have certainly as well. And you know that the other team comes in with a certain type of energy that if you don't match it, it can be a runaway train. And I think that that is something that the really good teams that play these kinds of defenses, they do lean on or on the road sometimes like tough games they know they can at least come in with that identity and that pressure i'll give you a quick miss of mine and not from coach christian's standpoint but he mentioned different presses based on you know which side the ball went to he talked about linger traps he kind of threw a couple of tantalizing tactical things and if we had more time i would love to just really dove into how why when you know the different coverages and the different things that he would do because i think that's really interesting is not just having hey we just two to one press and we trap in these areas but really tailoring it personnel wise like you mentioned areas of the floor time of the game because that layered on top of your aggressiveness and all that stuff we just talked about can of course add like a strategic advantage as well yeah i wrote down too you know he mentioned that they'd scout their opponent's press break and you kind of have the same logic as you hear a lot with like zone with the zone offense. It's their second best offense. And you know, how deep of a playbook do they have against zone? You know, so the same thing with a press break. I mean, I know our team only has one press break. I don't imagine teams really go deep in press breaks, but kind of piggybacking off of your miss, you know, on its face, I understand, of course, they scout their press break, but is it just to know like, okay, what it looks like, how they get it in and then how we can go from there? Or is it, are they trying to blow up the press break and take away catches he did, I thought, have some great points on if they have a dominant point guard, how they want to take that away and how they either shade it, double it, and then encourage like five men to catch it. And then that's where he talked about the linger yeah. traps. Again, I reference back to what we mentioned at the top, just how nuanced he is, how thoughtful, how thorough he is with these tactics, these strategies, and how much thought and reason he has behind all of it. Absolutely. And just to name drop one more name for us, the conversation with Justin Potts last year, Montclair State head coach, D3 Montclair State. 
they're a fantastic pressing trapping team. And they talked about some of those gray areas and some of the different ways to apply pressure. So if we need another name drop, I can do you one more. I also wrote down our conversation with Eric Olin because Jamie also mentioned how hard it is to press teams willing to shoot threes. And I think that's what we're always interested, you know, what gives the pressing team the most trouble? I mean, of course, you know, good guards who don't really put themselves in bad positions, but then teams that are willing to be aggressive against the trap and shoot threes. And I think, I believe it was, uh, oh, another name drop, man, we're crushing it today. Coach Tobin Anderson <laughs> mentioned like, yeah. yeah, you give up a dunk, like, okay, great, but it's still only two points. I think where the threes are really damaging and a lot more so than yeah. Yeah, any layup you're going to give up against the press. And that's the risk of a press. Sometimes you give up layups, but if you got a team that's willing to constantly hunt those corner threes and take those, you can get dangerous if they sink a couple. Yeah. And it's like that fine line because his sub there was the kind of randomized shot selection that teams will take. And a team that's disciplined against the press that the right guys take the right shots, like the right threes can be detrimental, like you mentioned. But if you've got teams that are out of sync, still shooting tough threes that you know, can be the advantage of the press. So it's that give and take and always interesting to see how that plays out. Well, Pat, I give you one of my misses right there. Anything else as we wrap this up on your end or any other just names you want to just throw out? No names, but I'm sure as I start to talk here, I'll come up with one. But no, one miss for me was going back to the first bucket when he talked about his meetings he likes to schedule and that he likes to send his guys some questions. I wish I did follow up on, you know, what kind of questions is he asking? I'm pretty certain it was more having to do with maybe the the nature of the season, the time of the season, but I don't know, maybe there are just some general check-in questions that he likes to always kind of cycle through with his guys. But I would have been curious to hear like, what are these questions that he's sending or what's kind of the framework of these questions that he likes to send out? Well, Pat, this was awesome conversation with coach Christian. Anything else from your end as we start to wrap this up? No, but I can't think of another coach to reference. I feel like we've <laughs> kind of got most of the podcasts of 2023 reference, yeah, couples we- 2022. So I think we're good. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks to Coach Christian for coming on and being a guest today. Wish him the best of luck the rest of the way. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Who do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll <laughs> slapping glass.